Welcome to Better Words, a podcast for readers who want to know the stories behind the pages. We're your hosts, Caitlin and Michelle, two book nerds who bring you in-depth conversations about writing and publishing from those on the inside. Basically, we're just here to talk about books. We're so glad you're joining us. Hello, welcome to another episode of Better Words. I'm sorry, but I still can't believe we're at season 10. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's just so strange. But yes, of course, season 10, we have another fantastic interview for you guys today with the wonderful Jessica Detman. But first, Michelle, we have a book club to do with a book that you gave me and I read it super quickly. (laughs) Yeah, it's one of those YA books that you can just devour in a weekend, isn't it? We both absolutely flew through it on weekends away, which is kind Mm. of funny. Easy. Um, So let me, I've got the blurb up so I can read it. So the book is Am I Normal Yet by Holly Bourne and it's actually like it's like fairly old in YA terms now because it came out in 2015 Um, but the reason that we wanted to do this is because it's one that I think we've both been meaning to read uh, because we enjoy I mean we've talked about Holly Bourne on this podcast before Yeah. yeah yeah we love her adult work we've both read some of her young adult she's actually like I would say like a prolific young adult writer now she's got heaps of books out um but this was one of I think maybe like her third or fourth book like she had written books before this but I feel like this is when I started to know her as a YA author so this book follows Evie who is 16 and she just wants to be normal um don't we all at that age uh she has been having I guess quite intense treatment for OCD and anxiety she was actually hospitalized for that at a period like before the book starts but when we start she's easing back into school she's coming off her medication and she's really happy to be at a new school where no one knows her as the girl who went crazy Um, she starts trying to go to some parties trying to make some new friends she really wants to go out with a boy because that's a normal thing (laughs) Um, and I think like there are some things in this that I think maybe we're not so drawn to in books anymore which we'll talk about in a bit but um you know she is a a teenager trying to live what she thinks is a normal teenage life but as that all happens things start to spiral with her mental health and really what this novel ends up being is an exploration of how mental health and recovery from intense periods of mental health issues is never a linear process. Um, so yeah, that's that's the book. <laughs> yeah, and also a lot about the stigma surrounding mental health, particularly some conditions like OCD, where it becomes a bit of a joke for someone who's just a bit tidy and that sort of stuff. And so like Evie's main thing is that she doesn't want to tell her new friends or any of these boys what she is going through. And then, you know, as things do in YA books, it all spirals. <laughs> um, but yeah, back to, I suppose, more of the start of the book, because I mean, this is just like one of these things that I come across in all YA books, all teen shows, where I'm just like, 16 and all your friends are sleeping around and they're drinking and going to clubs and everything and I'm just like (laughs) do not relate (laughs) no it's absolutely not what my the two girls who started a book podcast can't relate like yeah shock yeah Yeah. (laughs) but also because the book is uh English Evie is like it's the first year of like college so they're yeah it's not col- like it's col- like I don't totally, but it's like this sort of that extra school thing where like if you're going for like really good universities or something, you kind of do this like year 11, year 12 thing, right? Is yeah, that what it is? I think so. <laughs> I don't even really know. But then like when I think about the ages, both of us were 16 for the majority and you for all of grade 12. So yeah, it it doesn't like it seems young, but then I think about it, I'm like, actually, we would have been sixteen, um, and I can see like at the time I thought I was pretty grown up. 
Um, yeah, so I thought yeah. I was grown up. I knew I wasn't this grown up, but um, no. But I guess like yes. I guess it would be like our equivalent of like maybe grade twelve ish. It's towards yeah. the end of school anyway. Yeah, I think it is supposed to be like year twelve, and yeah, maybe you know some people are that young in year twelve, but I. Yeah, I couldn't quite figure it out because I'm just not totally across the school system and how that works. But in comparison to the Australian school system, we were both 16 in year 12, as you said. But the Queensland curriculum has since changed and that's no longer mm. the case. Mm. And and we're both born as late in the most year. People, <laughs> yeah, exactly. We are both born late in the year. And as people tend to know from American media, most American teenagers are like turn 18 in their senior last year of school, which is also the equivalent of like grade 12, like that's still 12 years. So yeah, yeah, I just don't know exactly know how the school system works and it kept throwing me how young they were. <laughs> oh, it's it sort of didn't bother me after a while, but I think both of us have, I think maybe touched on briefly, maybe when we did our end of year wrap ups and we realised we both read a lot less young adult now like oh my god is this us growing up is this us being old adults middle-aged people um (laughs) but I think both of us are reading less YA now outside the podcast um and I think the ones that you and I really love and are more drawn to are those ones that are really on the cusp of like they're in year 12 or they're at the end of year 12 they're starting university it's that sort of older YA and I will say like at times this felt a lot younger like it also wouldn't have surprised me if Evie was like 14 because yeah Yeah. it did feel like on the younger like it kind of mid-teenage years which obviously is like that's who it's written for it's not written for us in our late 20s I know but the, the interesting thing is about this book is that while some elements definitely feel that sort of, yeah, mid-teen range, like you said, about 15, 14, 15, 16, that it might not be as the character's age is not at that, like, university stage yet of, like, 18, 19, that kind of thing. But also the copy of the book that you had and you gave me and I read literally has on the back not suitable for younger readers because it does (laughs) deal with so much... Um, in terms of Evie's mental health journey. Mm. So it kind of does both. And maybe, again, it being published in 2015. Yeah, I, you know, the fact that it's, I think it's really interesting and I'm really glad that we've chosen to do something that's old in publishing terms um, because there well, were Because I just some... think this book would be handled differently now. Yes, like, we yeah, just know it so totally would. More. And I wonder if, I wonder if, in if this book was published now she may be older or some things might be changed a little bit like maybe if she would be like a year older or something maybe she'd be going to I don't know I don't know but you know what interested me so what we didn't talk about obviously it's a lot about mental health but a whole storyline in this is that um, Evie makes friends with some new girls and they start a spinster club which is like a really feminist um, sort of kick-ass thing to be like hey why are women called spinsters that's not fair let's reclaim that let's teach each other a little bit about feminism which I yeah. think is great and it, after they sort of like are talking about the Bechdel test at one point after yes. one of Evie's film classes up uh, they're like constantly having conversations and they're like oh guys Come on, let's stop talking about the boys and pass the Bechdel test, which is yeah. so fun, really. I And I do think, had I read this at 16, 17, 18, 19, like in uni, like perfect for me, would have been great. Not to say that I don't enjoy it now, but I, I just am like in a different, like to me, it's, it's, it's not aimed at me. So, you know, um, but, you know, I, I think in terms of looking back at that age range, I think, yeah, that's great. Especially because when it was published, I feel like there was a lot less conversation about like the, the whole like feminism coming back for lack of a better word conversation was sort of starting again, I think. And I still think there are a lot of books when I think about the books that came out around that time. Um, I still think it wasn't really something that would have been 
in YA as much, especially not as explicitly as that. So I think that's great. Interestingly, I think that the chat around like periods and stuff were this book written today. I think there would be some language that would be slightly different around like saying women versus like people who menstruate and stuff. Um, And I think that's because like Holly is obviously very conscious of that stuff. But also this book is what, seven years old now, eight years old now? It's almost 10 years old. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, and a lot of things have changed in that time. Yeah, well, I mean, thankfully, a lot of, you know, we're all a lot more educated on a lot of these things than we were almost 10 years ago. And you're right about talking about how books of that era being like, ah, oh, feminist and taking back these words. And I think there was a lot in YA books, you know, media for teens, like movies and TV shows and everything about that about the kind of victim blaming and slut shaming stuff. I mean, stuff hands up, I time. fully needed that because when we were at high school, we were all like, oh my God, we don't need feminism anymore. Like, duh, how dumb were we? Um, you know, but like, seriously, that was like mid, mid 20, mid 2000s, mid 2010s. There was this idea of like, oh, but we don't need that anymore. And I just think today's teens are so much savvier, thank God, than us. We yeah. were idiots. Um, but yeah, I, I just know. think like, yeah, I, I did need that book at that age to be like, Hey, here's the Bechdel test. Yeah. It's funny, but you know, talking about like things that have changed and this book is not aimed at us and all of that stuff. Michelle, how old were you in 2015? Um, I was 21. I am also trying to do the math. How old was I in 2015? Yeah. Uh, it's easy because my birthday was like, I was born in 94. So I was 21. Yeah. Oh my god, we have to cut out this math. And I was born at the end of '96, and so in 2015, I turned. You'd be 19. I turned right? 19 at the very yeah. end of 2015. So, so you'd have been 18 look, most of still, the year. <laughs> I was 18 the entire year until the last three weeks. Um, <laughs> and look, that does put us as still like a bit older. But I can also say that that is pretty much exactly the time when I was rediscovering all this modern YA after having read Hunger Games and stuff like that in high school, like my first year out of uni, I was reading all the Rainbow Rowell and John Green and all of that stuff. Yeah. So this, you know, it kind of was for me at the time. Imagine if I had read this when my friend actually gave it to me when it came out. (laughs) (laughs) It would have been perfect. And it was as I was really like just rediscovering feminism and like understanding it more and just generally not being a dumb bitch. I don't think I actually (laughs) asked you that. Has this book been on your bookshelf for eight years? Yeah. Wow. I know. You know what's embarrassing is when you start to decide that you're going to move overseas permanently and you're not just going to stick everything in a storage locker and come back to it for two years. You um, really take note of how much stuff has been on your shelf and that's not even the longest one. I've had stuff from uni on there that I did not read and I finally was like, okay, I need to see if I... I'm going to read this or get rid of it. And I started trying to read some of these books, like YA books that I had bought at uni. So over 10, like 10 years ago, and I was like, nah, my taste has changed. I don't like this anymore. I have donated, I would say 50 or more books to Vinnie's since we got back from our trip overseas. And I have plenty more to go. Um, I will, of course, be keeping a lovely selection of Aussie YA to ship over to the UK because you know, there's so many good ones. Um, but yeah, I think, I mean, I'm not saying that my taste has changed with Holly Bourne because I still love her books. Um, but I just think it was interesting to read this from an older perspective and acknowledge that. But thankfully, you know, Holly also writes for adults now as well. So if you're listening to this and thinking, oh, this sounds really young for me, I don't read YA, then you definitely have to check out some of her adult books, which still deal with a lot of themes around mental health, um, around like feminism and sort of those issues. Um, And they are How Do You Like Me Now, Pretending and her latest one, Girlfriends. Um, So yeah, I, Holly Bourne is such a good author and honestly I think it's just interesting to look back on this book and I don't think much would change I just think there'd be like just a few little tweaks really um, but I yeah. still think for that age group I mean and maybe that's the other thing maybe that age group doesn't need an intro to feminism anymore because they're probably a little bit more woke than we were no and that is kind of one of the things that just would change is some of those discussions because teenagers today 
are just talking about it in a different way. But as far as the exploration of and yeah. yeah, I feel like it would be that stuff instead. Yeah, but as far as the exploration of uh, mental health stigma and being willing to open up to your friends after having been hospitalized and on in therapy and on quite high doses of medication and weaning off it right as you meet them, I imagine that is still really, really difficult for a lot of people to talk about. And it's handled in this book really beautifully. Yeah, it really is. I think that is such a wonderful element of this book. Also the way that, um, like, it, and, you know, it could be quite triggering because we do spiral with Evie, you know. You can, and it just, I wanted to give her the biggest hug because you could see it happening. You could see her start to spiral and you could see her obsessive thoughts. And, you know, I, I don't have OCD, I have had experience with some obsessive thoughts in relation to my anxiety Um, and like I can't even imagine what it's like to be fully in that headspace and dealing with OCD it's such a terrible it's it's horrible Um, but you know, it was so sad to, to read that. And it is a really emotional book for, you know, like quite, a, we were like, yeah, it's a quick read, but it's quite emotional. And I think the other sort of heartbreaking thing was that Evie and her parents try to keep a lot of that from her younger sister. Um, but yeah. instead they sort of create this atmosphere of kind of fear around it. And I think that's something that they as a family obviously reckon with in, in the book. Um, and yeah, I just think there is so much stuff still, even if there are like minor tweaks on the feminism side of things that would maybe be made today, there's still so much value in this. And I think just, God, the, the discussion around, hey, recovery from mental health isn't a linear process. It's going to go up and down. You're going to have relapses. Like that in itself is such a valuable discussion. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I mean, I loved this book. It was, you know, t- like tough at times, but still really enjoyable to read. You know, I loved Evie and all of her friends and the YA thing of like her best friend throughout this book uh, has changed quite a lot from what Evie knew because of her new boyfriend who's in like a metal band. And like all yeah. of that stuff is so funny. Yeah. And it's and just relatable even and... in your 20s. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And the following books, uh, like the books that follow on from Am I Normal Yet, follow the two friends that Evie makes. And I was, as I realized that at the end of the book, I was like, oh my God, fantastic. I can't yeah, wait to read I'm, those I, I'm totally going to read those. Like I'm going to save it for like a holiday and enjoy them and read them because I did find them really enjoyable characters. Yeah. I saw some reviews that were like, oh my God, Evie's horrible, blah, blah, blah. I just think she's a teenager. Like, she does make some silly oh, mistakes. Yeah. You know, she does treat someone in the book badly, but she realises that and she learns from it and we've literally all been there. So I do think... Um, I mean, how many times on this really podcast good. interviewing YA authors have we been like, yeah, so that was dumb, wasn't it, of your character to do? <laughs> like, Yeah, literally. They're teenagers. Literally. They make mistakes. Yeah. yeah. So I think, um, you know, all in all really like enjoyable book I'm glad you read it I wish I'd read it sooner I wish I'd read it a little bit when I was younger like you know I needed it more when I was younger um I don't need it as much now but it was still a really enjoyable YA read yeah it absolutely was and now onto a bit more mess uh without adult romance read (laughs) yeah. and the wonderful just a mid-30s a mid-30s romance mess <laughs> yep it's always a mess. <laughs> Our guest this week is a Sydney-based writer and performer. Her blog, Life with Gusto, turns a sharp but affectionate eye on modern parenthood. She's performed her work several times at Giant Dwarf Story Club and has appeared on their podcast. After a decade working as an editor at Random House Australia and HarperCollins Publishers, she made the transition to writing after two small children rendered her housebound. (laughs) She also once appeared as the City of Sydney Christmas Angel, which we're going to ask about a little later because it sounds quite spectacular. 
Today, we're talking about her new novel, Without Further Ado. So, without further ado, welcome to the podcast, Jessica Detman. Thank you, Caitlin and Michelle, for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. I have read all of your books and loved them. And this is where I'll also, as I awkwardly do, yes, Jess is published by HarperCollins, but I did not work on your books, never have. Throwing my headphones around. Never um, will. <laughs> I never will. We'll see. Never want to. I swapped myself that way. Hopefully one day. day. Yes. Maybe that we'll didn't see. come across as you intended. No. Oh my god. Never. No, never has. Jess is like note to self. <laughs> yeah. If Anna meant Caitlin, be like, no, she clearly should not be working on my book. Um, <laughs> but yes, I. <laughs> I don't like to ask too many Harper authors on, and I never would if I was actually working on your campaign because that would be very strange and awkward. Um, so, no, just as a fan and a reader, welcome, Jess. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm honoured. <laughs> um, so I guess that the easiest place to start is if you tell us a little bit about Without Further Ado. Okay. So, Without Further Ado is a rom-com, an unashamed, very, um, uh, a rom-com about rom-coms. It's about a woman called Willa, who is 36, and she's a publisher of romances in a very strange little business run by one man, and his four sons all work with him as well. And Willa works there, as does her cousin Imogen. Now, Willa's the only one in that company who publishes romance novels. Everybody else works on making manuals for tractors and all sorts of farming equipment and things that are really the antithesis of the romance novel. Um, And since Willa was 16, she's been a little bit obsessed with the opening scenes of Kenneth Branagh's adaptation that he made in 1993 of Shakespeare's very famous play, Much Ado About Nothing. And readers do not have to have read Much Ado About Nothing, seen it as a play or seen it as the film um, to understand Willa's obsession with it. She got a feeling of passion and excitement and joy when she saw the opening scenes of that movie. She loves the whole movie too, but she has been seeking to recapture that in every aspect of her life ever since she was 16. So for 20 years she's been trying to to feel again like she did as a 16-year-old. Uh, which goes about exactly as well as you might expect. Yes, when you make decisions the way a teenager might. (laughs) (laughs) We were saying, you know, I was like, I've never seen that movie. And Caitlin was like, neither have I. And it's not on any streaming platform. So I think both of us are quite It was on a streaming platform. It was on a streaming platform until I started to write the book, at which point the gods whipped it off and now it's not. Of course. I did say to Caitlin that um, we should like rent it or something from like, you can like rent or buy on like YouTube and stuff. I am very curious. You can rent it on iTunes. Yeah, there you go. You can do that because it's an amazing, amazing um, film and great romantic comedy. Equally, you can just go and watch the opening credits on YouTube. (laughs) Just for that. We might leave a link. We might leave a link to that just, you know. For, for book-specific stuff, but you do describe it so beautifully. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I did try and make it so that if you hadn't, I mean, it would be a very restrictive way to write a book if only people who'd seen a certain um, 30-year-old film understood any of the references, <laughs> so I tried to avoid doing that. So what sparked this book for you then? Was it watching that movie again or, you know, was it there was. something else? It was. So... I watched that movie a lot because it came out when I was about 15 or 16. I saw it at the movies with my best friend. Then we went around watching it at everybody's house after school for years. We loved it. Um, And then I, you know, stopped being a teenager and it sort of fell out of my consciousness to some extent. And then I hadn't seen it again until... 2020 and we were in lockdown and I was looking for comfort watches and I found it on I think maybe Stan yes I think it's Stan who no longer is streaming it (laughs) and I sat down one afternoon while the children were um, doing their home learning with great resistance and watched it and I felt the same way as I had as a teenager and I suddenly realized just how much of that 
film, that how much that film had influenced the way I felt about the world and romance. And then I started to think about how dangerous that would be if you'd never got past any of that. You know, it, yeah. it made me nostalgic mm. for my teenage self, but it's, it hasn't really formed how I um, behave and go about my life. But I wondered what it would happen if you'd never quite moved past that and continued to seek that feeling. Yeah. yeah, I think that's so fascinating. Your your choice of, you know, teenage obsession movie sounds a lot more highbrow than mine, which was Angus Thongs and Perfect Snogging. And same thing, we watched yeah, it same. at the cinemas and then we watched it. Was that yours too, Caitlin? Do you think that would be? I, yeah, I loved that movie. I watched it several times. And when I think that yeah, at we watched it obsessively at sleepovers. You know, in that, in that movie, there's a scene where they, they're at a sleepover and they, like, rank each other's, like, features. I did that once with my friends. It was awful. Like, I don't know why we decided yeah. to do that. But oh, yeah, that wouldn't have ended well. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a bad moment in that movie. But anyway. Um... Well, before you think that I was like a terribly highbrow teen, before you think I was a terribly highbrow teenager, the reason we were all obsessed with that film was because of the actor Robert Sean Leonard, who had just been a huge hit in um, Dead Poets Society and went straight on to do much ado about nothing. We were not very interested in um, the Shakespeare. We were certainly not lusting after Kenneth Branagh, although as an adult, you know, that's Things change. I bet, um, I bet all the English teachers were very ball. happy with that, though. Like, yeah, just yeah, absolutely thrilled that, yeah. <laughs> I guess I guess maybe um, not quite, like, as obsessive because it didn't come out in the cinemas when we were at school. Like, obviously, like I said, I think the songs and Perfect Snogging did. But the one that is, like, the cult classic, of course, is Ten Things I Hate About You and Heath Ledger. And we all watched yes. that in school when we were doing Shakespeare things. <laughs> That's an example of an adaptation. So... Yeah, I, yes. oh, they, what they, they love it. I think they love when something like that comes out that captures um, a moment and the zeitgeist for a new generation and then the English teachers get all excited and, and yeah. try and tell us Shakespeare's <laughs> eternally relevant. Totally. Yeah. And the know, English they might teachers not be 100% wrong. Have yeah, I mean, like, the stories, the, are, the stories are, are totally still relevant. It's just, like, let's tell them in an accessible way, like, you know, 10 Things I Heard About You exactly. or, indeed, yeah. your book. Um, mm. So... Yeah, can you tell us a little bit about, I guess, the Shakespearean element then of obviously the movie yeah, is sure. in this, but how Did does you, it trickle like, watch into... watch other adaptations yeah. or read Much Ado while writing this book? I, I read Much Ado and um, I didn't watch any other adaptations of it because I don't want to. I love that movie. <laughs> You've got yeah. one, it's fine. Why mess with perfection? And I read a bit... Um, better, bit of literary criticism around the play and, you know, what people think of it and thought of it over various times. And then I realised that what I could do, because that would make it a little bit easier for me to start writing a book from scratch without much more of an idea than a woman is obsessed with a film, um, was that I decided to to, um, replicate at least the first half of the plot, more or less. So this this book follows the first half of Much Ado About Nothing up until um, a very important climax in the play slash film, after which in the play and film it all goes so horribly anti-feminist you can't even believe it. Shocker. And you can't countenance ever telling a story like that today. And so I fixed the rest of it. I made it... <laughs> I told a different story for the second half. I just love your choice. I thought you were, I think just, you know, when someone's talking and you think, you know, what they're going to say next, I thought you were going to say, I changed it, but no, fixed it. You made like, you fixed it. Fixed it. It's all better now. (laughs) It's so funny that you mentioned that and you put it that way though, because um, I don't know if you've seen the show Upstart Crow which is also on Stan, um, yes. which is, yeah, yes. the comedy about by David Mitchell um, as Shakespeare. And it's it's incredibly and clever. And it's written by Ben Elton. Yes, who, of course, yeah. gave a lovely endorsement for your book. Um, but, Indeed. yeah, it, 
it is so incredibly clever um, and, you know, you can enjoy it without knowing much about Shakespeare, but if you know even a tiny little bit, it makes it all the funnier because there's references to him plagiarising stuff and there's a very clever character called Kate who wants to be in Romeo and Juliet, but she cannot possibly be cast because she is a woman and women don't play female roles in Shakespeare. They, do, they don't play anything, <laughs> let alone women. That's yeah, right. exactly. So she's always petitioning for that and, you know, um, the voice of, you know, reason um, and logic in a lot of these situations. And we were watching the episode last night about the Taming of the Shrew because each episode sort of mirrors is him writing different plays. Yes. We talk about the Taming of the Shrew and he set, does the setup, and then he says, but then, you know, she's convinced that, you know, this man is a fair maiden and that the moon is a sun and all this sort of stuff. And Kate's just like, that's terrible. What are you talking about? Like, she's just like, this is so bad. And it just reminded me of that, the idea of just like, it was going so well and then you got really misogynistic and horrible and then it... (laughs) Exactly, exactly. I once went to see um, a production of Romeo and Juliet that my brother was in, uh, a a semi-professional production, and it was really, really long because that's one of the longest plays and it's almost always abridged somewhat for production this one wasn't so it was really long and we got an hour maybe two hours in and then you know everyone clapped and the curtain went up and we were like let's go home that could be the end nobody's died yet it's great this is a beautiful romantic story if we end it now but of course we all had to go out to the interval and then come back and hear the whole rest of it where it just (laughs) goes all completely downhill (laughs) So, you know, that's so yeah, funny I decided. because Michelle and I, just on the weekend, um, I was actually in Rockhampton this past weekend um, and we both saw a local production of Into the Woods. And I don't know if you're familiar with Into the Woods, but everything is perfect at the end of Act 1 and everyone has their happily ever after. And then all of Act 2 is like the princes cheating on Cinderella and someone dies and like yeah. the someone, giant like comes back down die. the beanstalk and it's like all <laughs> chaos and completely goes off the rails and yeah you I, honestly I was so tired so, yeah. someone I can saw, fix that too <laughs> I saw it on Friday night after work and I was so tired getting towards the end of act one and I was like oh maybe this is one of those nice short musicals where it doesn't have an interval. That'd be great. It's already 9.30. I really want to go to bed. And then I was like, oh, no, there's more. Yeah. <laughs> but it was, it was very good. It's just, you know, when you're tired and you're like, I could leave. No, I can't. Oh. The people yeah, in front of me did no. leave. Did they? Yeah. Oh. I don't know oh, why gosh. or if they were confused or whatever because there's fully, like, at, right at the end, the narrator is like, it's not the end. What will happen? To be continued not happy like they make maybe it clear. those people had like an maybe only happy endings policy maybe you know? yeah. good which <laughs> is fair. Go. or they just wanted to be in bed by 9 30 which is also yeah. Um, yeah. i can get I, on board with that. <laughs> anyway um so back to back to your wonderful book so you mentioned yeah. um obviously your main character willa can you shed a little bit more light on her and i guess what she goes through in this book for those who haven't who haven't read it yet She goes on quite the journey. Willa's never found the love of her life yet. She's had several relationships, um, nothing serious for a long time, and she is looking for the big love, the, the, the one. But what she doesn't want is a marriage and children. She wants a relationship and she wants happiness and partnership and all of that, but she really doesn't want a big white wedding and she absolutely does not want children. She wants to be child free. And that, um, that's something that comes up a lot through the book because she has several great friends who she um, interacts with throughout the story and they are not child-free or don't choose to be or want to be child-free in their lives. One of them, she's, uh, one of them is close, more closely aligned with Willa on how she sees that. But their other friend has three kids and Willa loves children. She just doesn't want them for herself. And I wanted to create a character for whom having making the choice to be child-free was as natural and kind of unquestionable as somebody who does want children. You know, there's no big reason. There's no huge trauma in her past. She just doesn't want them. Um, yeah. So that I was quite seeing, a fun I loved seeing the way that that was with. just in there. And also a woman who doesn't want children yet loves, you know, her friend's children, her, you know, 
her, and her nieces or nephews or her like, you know yeah. friends exactly yeah and and I, yeah I didn't want her to be demonized and I know she's yeah. not some you know like this just because she doesn't want children exactly. like some awful witch or something who hates children yeah. but yeah and there was actually and even a couple of times when of, like when Imogen's like oh and you don't want to get married and like she's like no it's not it's not that like when she sort of explains it and she gets really passionate about it and stuff I think it's totally fair to have those discussions and it's funny isn't it because I got married recently and I honestly still was like I don't really know like obviously I know why I wanted to marry that person but as a societal construct mm. I don't really exactly. know why why, why exactly? marriage yeah in yeah. lots of ways yeah, yeah. so I think it's still and it's, a really it's uncomfortable when people question that yeah <laughs> and it's yeah. uncomfortable if you because but just because people question it doesn't mean they're undermining your choices. And I think so often with those your things, choice. if you say, well, why yes. did you want to have kids? The assumption is like, oh, are you saying that that was better? Like, do you know, like it just, we get defensive about things. Yeah. But like, yeah. I can totally say that I totally wanted to be with that person, but I still couldn't tell you, like, I still think that my decision for marriage was influenced by society. And, you know, my wedding as non-traditional mm. as it was, like still... I don't know. Why, why did I want to do that? Maybe just because I wanted it's the still a wedding for a day. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It was still a wedding, but it was very, it was as non-traditional as well, you can get. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's entirely valid. <laughs> yeah. I think, yeah, you, you know, yeah, everyone's got to do whatever yeah. they want. I also really yeah. loved, um, you know, the part of Willa's storyline is with, yeah, her friend, as you said, Jess, who she thinks is more aligned with her on, on these things. And as, yeah, her new relationship can, you know, evolves and things start to change. Yeah. And that's really and hard I, on Billa. I really to ex- exactly. I really wanted to explore that feeling that I think is very common of when your partner, oh, sorry, when your really close friend is suddenly a little bit ahead of you or maybe behind you or just diverging from you on your path through life because that can be incredibly confronting and that makes you rethink all your own choices and what you want from life and it can make people make bad decisions or fast decisions and um yeah so willa's best friend cat has a new boyfriend um who willa's not that into and honestly i don't think it would matter whether he was or wasn't lovely she's she doesn't want to lose her friend to him so she's you know quite determined not to like him and we had this discussion when we talked to Genevieve Novak about crushing as well, this idea mm. of like the kind of jealousy and fear of losing a friend that can exist in friendships that we don't want to acknowledge because it's a really like, it's a yucky emotion. It's a yucky emotion to feel. It's not nice to talk about, to say, actually, I'm quite jealous that, you know, they're no longer just my best friend, yeah. even you if you're really happy else for them. With. <laughs> Yeah, like even if you're really happy, you're like, oh, but this, because it's, I think you're right, it's that like, it's something changes in the dynamic and you're like, oh my God, like Mm. it's the change, none of us like change. (laughs) And I think it's that like period of transition where you're like, I've got to adjust to our, whether it's you're having a baby or they're having a baby or new boyfriends or new jobs in new locations, like it's all, it's all really Yeah, and it feels, (laughs) there's that, that pull between, um, trying to really prove that you do want the best for your friend while still saying, I really wish things just stayed like they were because I loved them like that. Yeah. 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 It's a really interesting, because I think we acknowledge that sometimes in relationships, but again, as with so many things with friendships and again, this is a discussion we have all the time on the podcast, but there's so many things that we maybe acknowledge in relationships that we don't acknowledge in friendships, even though the emotional effects can be, just the same uh, similar yeah yeah I like agree. you would I acknowledge agree. that like in a relationship uh if a, a two people decide to have children that's going to change their relationship and that's going to take time for them to get used to and there's going to be differences in their relationship with each other but you, we don't often see oh well actually like you know your friendships then are going to change as well we often only think of like the, the mm. two people it immediately affects which i think is really interesting yeah, whereas the ripple of all of those decisions, um, those ripples are huge mm. and, and it involves lots of people um, changing expectations and learning to see their friends differently. Yeah. So anyway, it was really interesting to yeah, see yeah, that from well. Willa's perspective, yeah, like to, to see that yeah. her go through that discussion. and, and really liked that part of the that. story. Mm. I also really liked Yeah, and I, like, I quite like showing kind of... Um, 
ugly emotions and the emotions that we feel ashamed of and that mm. we don't really want to talk about very often and and you know jealousy and envy are like that yeah, yeah absolutely we, we try and brush them under the carpet yeah yeah I also really liked reading about Willa's publishing career um yes. at this <laughs> manual I mean at it's just, fantasy land <laughs> it's just hilarious that she's like you know what we could do and she just like starts with her job at this manual she just starts publisher. a publishing list she just starts publishing yeah manuals. how yeah i mean that she's in a really strange little situation and i i wasn't sure that was going to be convincing her working in that setup but i really wanted her to be the only one in her whole life in her romance who does that world job. yeah in her own little romance world and and she's really isolated herself deliberately in that world. You know, she mm. she is not she's on Twitter and she sort of stalks other romance publishers, but she just never speaks to any of them. So she doesn't have a network. She's really just built it from the ground up. She's found the authors, she's found freelance editors and um, you know, designers and just sort of taught herself how to do this and and because it's all ebooks, that's conceivable you know if she if this was a bricks and mortar publishing um, operation that wouldn't work you know she mm -hmm. would actually have to find a distributor and a um and salespeople and printers and things but yeah so i i wanted her to have the, be in this little sort of romance ivory tower living in the in a world which is not realistic yeah did it did it feel a bit like, um, you know, like revealing the magic trick in a way to be writing about at least some part of the publishing industry in a book? Like it, it seems uh, such a meta thing to be doing. Well, it does, but also like there's just so many books and stories where the women, like in, it's, it's a real rom-com trope is the woman who works in publishing, right? Yeah. yeah. In, in, in rom-com. And, and that's what this book is. You know, this book picks up on every little rom-com trope you can think of. So there's, you know, nobody runs a bakery, but that's the other job women in rom-coms have. Yeah. Um, or work in yeah. a magazine. Yes, they're always journalists or writers. Yeah. And that's presumably because people writing rom-coms don't have a lot of time to research things. Certainly that was my um reason yeah exactly what's a job I've had working in publishing yeah, yeah she, she could either be a Christmas angel or work in publishing <laughs> um speaking of publishing you know Willa talks a lot and you've mentioned before about the, the feeling when reading her manuscripts um mm. so I'm interested in how obviously you define it for Willa in the book but I'm interested like when you were working in publishing how did you sort of did have a feeling about which books you would go for and then how do you make sure when you're writing that you you create that yourself for whoever reads your books well that's a great question when i was in publishing i was never at the i never went up to the level where you got to choose what books we published um i did sometimes have to go through the slush pile and see what grabbed me there uh so it is all a bit mysterious and magical you know that initial feeling of of liking the way someone writes it's I don't know how you can um you can't pick it if you could that every book would be a hit right but you you can't know that and you can't know what resonates with you will resonate with other people mm. it's so hard that feeling like at work you know we have the banjo prize that help Collins does every year now and yeah. I will like read the entries and any that you know hopefully I can tell are not great. I am happy to say they're not great, but any that I'm like, is this okay? Is this good? Is it really, really good? I just don't know. And so I say, Anna, Catherine, someone else, read this, please. Can you please look through? Yeah. I have no idea. Yeah, it's I don't really think hard I have to trust that. your own judgment. Yeah, I don't think I have that. But, I mean, I'm not an editor. Or... But I think that just comes no. with experience. Mm. It, honestly, I think for publishers it comes with experience. And also they nobody in publishing is working like Willa is. Willa is choosing everything herself and making every decision. In publishing, as you know, there's a lot of people who have to want to publish a book before yeah. that happens. More people it's, than it's a lot of It's not just down to the one person who, exactly. It's not yeah. just one person who feels the feeling when they read the book. It's everyone else who, you know, has to make sure that that book is going to sell. <laughs> 
or has yeah. a place in the market. Yeah, absolutely. There's way more people involved than people probably realize. But yeah, I think that's why I enjoyed reading about Willa's work mm. as well. Because it was, and it was so funny. Like one of my favorite bits was when she took an author to lunch and it was like the only law author that lives in town or in Sydney or whatever. And so they took, they go to lunch and pretend like they're real, <laughs> they're really in publishing. And I just thought that was so cute. Real grown ups in a proper publishing industry. Yeah. <laughs> that scene was, um, that was part of a prize that I gave in an, in a, an auction on Twitter back when the uh, bushfires were happening at the beginning of 2020 oh. and you, and there was something called authors for fireys where people auctioned off, uh, you know, a small part in my new book or your name in my book. And, and in fact, a friend of mine, Steve Murdoch got that. <laughs> and so that's why that character is in there. <laughs> I love that. Oh, that's incredible. <laughs> and and also because Willa has all these all these romance authors who are just normal people. Like it's almost like superheroes. They just yeah. going about their lives doing ordinary jobs but also writing romances on the side, which is in fact not completely not how things work. There are yeah. lots of people who do that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And particularly with romance as well, like a lot of people who you know don't use their real names and they have like a cool romance mm-hmm. author sounding yeah. name plenty of pseudonyms yeah yeah <laughs> oh my goodness so much fun um now i can see michelle has written that we have differing opinions on the appeal of being part of such a big family because i wrote in my notes to her that i got about a third of the way through the book and thought i'd love to be- date someone in a family that was this close and then you know things get a bit <laughs> things get a bit yeah so I don't completely stand by that, but I still, you know, my family is all quite close. So I think I would like that. And, you know, without getting too too specific about what any of our families are like or anyone we've ever dated, what their families are like, <laughs> why did you want to explore the dynamics of this, like, big interconnected family? They all work together. They all hang out together constantly. And then the difference um, to the... <laughs> quite literally close family that was in your second book as well yeah I I seem to really like close families don't I I have a very (laughs) close family then it's not a huge family I've you know got two siblings there's four in the the large family in this book Mm. and there has been there have been people working with each other in my family over the generations it's always worked pretty well um but, but yes, I wanted to, to look at, and this family has a huge amount of money. That's the other mm, thing. So this, yeah. this family business that they all work in, nobody asks very many questions about the finances and how it all works. Um, so really and what their jobs really it's, are. It's more a question of, a, of what their jobs really are. It's yeah. more, it's more kind of a question of when is it um, no longer good parenting to keep supporting those children in a way that is just so because you like hanging around them you know um when do you you know there's there's quite a lot of over parenting that goes on in this book um and maybe a little bit of underparenting in other families but i i just find family dynamics completely intriguing i could i could read and write about them forever because yeah. they're there's they're pretty much the only characters you can't you your character can't escape from you know anybody else in your life you can walk away from and you can walk away from family too but it's a lot harder yeah absolutely and that makes for good drama and isn't Willa an only child as well so she's just like this outsider like is this normal that you're all together all the time Willa has Willa has a brother but he lives overseas he's married oh, and lives right. overseas, yeah. yeah but yeah much she's very much like the loner in this circle but yeah so so interesting the other thing that really struck me Jess is that all four brothers are quite different because they really could have easily blended together yeah and I worked really hard to avoid that because it's pretty easy to do I think yeah um, when you're writing siblings but I that's one of my pet hates when I'm reading a book is if I can't easily tell the part the characters apart at all times and from the beginning I can't stand having to go back and check who was who it just drives me nuts. So that, yeah, I'm glad that they were distinguished enough for you. 
I just love talking about this family. Um, we should probably move on and we'll go back a bit to your, a little bit back to your career in publishing and then your publishing journey as an author. Can you tell us a bit about all of that? Sure. So I, um, I studied English at uni and I did an honours year, sort of pretty mediocre results there all round. <laughs> And then I went to work at, at a bookshop full-time at the Constant Reader in Crow's Nest, which was um, the, my local bookshop growing up as well. And I was, I was there for about a year and then I went off and travelled for a little while. And when I came back, I wanted to, I realised I wanted to get into publishing. Um, my mum is a publisher and an editor. She's run her own company for a very long time. So I do have some experience with seeing mm. people operate kind of one to two person shows in the publishing industry and although my, I have to I hasten to add that that um the publishing company in this book is not at all based on my mother's <laughs> um so I got uh, I, I applied for and got a role as an editorial assistant at Random House in 2002 and my first uh the first thing I had to do was to mail out a couple of hundred rejection letters to everyone else who applied for and didn't get that job. Oh my god. That is brutal. Yeah. Oh wow. <laughs> it was very much Just it like, was almost like writing games lines and going, now... <laughs> I am lucky to have this job. Oh yeah. Wow. Yeah. It was really um, it was really confronting. The new but made me very grateful. Oh my god. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Oh my mm. goodness. Um <laughs> So I just started working there assisting the editors and my job was everything. It was a, There was a lot of photocopying. There was covering reception at lunchtime. There was helping look through the slush pile, helping the editors with anything they needed, checking corrections. Everything was um, done on paper back, back then in those days. So there was no on-screen editing yet. That came in a few years after I started. And but gradually just worked my way up helping with licensed um, overseas books as we repackaged those you know that was a good way of learning about briefing covers and text design and stuff like that and so eventually ended up as a senior editor there before I left to do a bit of um, post-grad work overseas and then came back and freelanced and then moved to HarperCollins for about nine months um, all of which I was pregnant <laughs> I was the best employee ever <laughs> Oh my goodness. I don't think I knew how long you'd worked at Harper, but that's so funny that you, I just knew that you had, but to have worked yes. there for such a short amount of time and now have been published by us for the past, what, four, five years? Four, four years, four and a half years. Yeah. yeah. So that was great. I mean, I, 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 I got to meet everybody. And the, the thing was that when I kind of stepped aside from the publishing industry, when my kids were born and from then I was just freelancing. Mm. Everybody, I, I stopped progressing up the ladder except everybody I knew didn't. And so by the time I was ready to move into writing books, all those people were up high in positions where they could talk to me and take my book to acquisitions. And, you know, so I was really playing the long game <laughs> as far as getting a foot in the door. Yeah, yeah definitely. So then um, you had your kids. Is that when you decided to start actually writing um, and trying to get published? Yeah. So I started uh, because it was 20, when was it, 2012, 2013, no, 2010. Uh, and it was pretty much the law that you had to have a blog. Um, so I started a blog. About yeah, you're my speaking to baby. two bloggers here, so we get it. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. But you've got a podcast, which is like, well, we evolved from that. Blog, yeah. What we would have had back then. Yeah. yeah exactly. Started, now it's the law to have a podcast. So yeah. You have to have a podcast. Yeah. Well, so actually, now, now just... it's the law to have a Substack, which we also have. So. Oh, yeah, right. I don't have a Substack yet. Maybe I'll, I've got to do that. Um, I still kind of write on the blog every now and then. It's really old school. It's like having a flip phone. Um, so, so I, yeah, I started writing these like roughly. 800 to 1,000 word blog posts, which is because that's how much I can write in 40 minutes and that's exactly how long my child slept for every nap, which was once a day. Mm. And so, I, yeah, I just started to do that and I learnt to, I sort of honed my writing skills and my um, and my, my comedy because it was really awful. Like I had a, 
my baby was just a terrible sleeper and we had a lot of really awful stuff going on in the extended family, a lot of illness and death. And, and I just like, all I, it was one of those, you have to laugh or you'll cry situations. Yeah. And so I just started writing funny stuff about my life. And eventually my children grew too old for me to continue mining their lives for content. And so I had to start writing fiction. <laughs> <laughs> and then as you were, you know, as probably like mainly with book one then, having worked mm. in the industry and as an editor, how did it then feel to have an editor working on your book? Oh, look, that's knowing that editors existed was the only reason I could have written a book yeah. because I knew how much Someone else would help. great editors do on books, you know. It, yeah. it really Such hard work. Um, demystified the, the process for me because having been at university where every author you study is just held up as this great light and they're usually old and dead and male and then working in publishing for a decade made me see that actually, no, the right as Willa discovers, the writers are just humans mm. and they're normal and they don't produce perfect work but they work with editors in a really beautiful um, interactive way. And so I was really excited to have that process happen. And it's been great. I love, I've loved being edited. Was there anything that surprised you about being on the other side of the process? Oh, look, I was a little bit surprised that I still felt all the feelings that all the other authors felt, like, you know, fury and anger and that I still, you know, when you initially get the edit and that I still wanted to be the one editor, the one writer whose work was perfect, you know? Yeah. Yeah, what do you I mean you have suggestions? Really, yeah. Yeah, I was really hoping that when I had it in my first draft, everyone would be like, oh, this is unimprovable. Send to print. <laughs> Send to the printer. This is amazing. Um, and that's not how it works. Yeah. So, like, even <laughs> I was though. I that I still felt like that. Yeah. So, like, you, even though probably logically in your head, you're like, it's not going to be like that. A little part of you, like, yeah. but maybe it's going to be like but that. Maybe I'll be the first one. Yeah, exactly <laughs> right. I'm the one, I'm the one to break the mold. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I feel like that would be very much me. Um, <laughs> has anything changed about your writing process over the course of, you know, the three books? Uh, yeah. I think I've become a little bit less catastrophic about it like I <laughs> the the first book I I was a nightmare to be around when I was writing it and then the second book I was slightly less of a nightmare well, no actually maybe more um and then the, this one it felt like a it felt like a job now I I yeah. and I and I didn't know if I could write one book I didn't know if I could write two books I certainly given that I had that experience, felt maybe slightly more confident that I could write a third book. But, of course, who knows if I can write a fourth. <laughs> I <laughs> always, to be determined. <laughs> always assume when I'm finished. Yeah, when I'm finished, I'm assuming that that was it. I'll never be able to write anything else. Yeah. All done. Maybe you have nothing left now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, terrifying. Yeah, no, I have, sure seen, I, have, I have heard authors talk about, and I feel this sometimes as well, that, you know, I think it was Helen Garner who was saying, like, you sit down to write and suddenly it's like you've just got to do it all over again and you're like, what do I do? And and every new thing is like, what? How do I do this? And there's no, like, I guess you, you know that you can do it but you're still starting from scratch But you scratch can't really time. remember how. That's right yeah. because it's really hard um, when people ask about what it felt like to write the book. I can't really remember. Like I can, I can remember certain moments of writing certain books only if I was in somewhere different. So anything that I wrote sitting here at my desk, I can't really remember writing, but occasionally I go, you know, to another place and write. And those moments I have a bit more of a clear memory of feeling certain things at writing certain parts of the books. But, yes, I still Google how, how do you write a book like, <laughs> each time and I still look in my books about writing books, none of which I've ever been able to actually read because I just find them really, really boring. <laughs> But everyone's like, oh, you've got to read this one. You know, it'll teach you exactly how to do everything. And I, like, have a look and then I just can't. I just, how can you write a book about writing books but they're so uninteresting to read? I just, <laughs> it baffles me. <laughs> 
Is it a oh bit like, God. um, you know how people say that like, oh, childbirth, you sort of forget afterwards how terrible it is or whatever. Is it a bit like that mm. with writing a book? Like afterwards, you're like, oh my God, I've made a book and it's amazing. I can't really remember the details of what I did or, you know, all the breakdowns I had, but I, you know, maybe I'll do it again. Yes. Like- <laughs> yes. I, yeah. It is like that. <laughs> Although I have to say I had really, really delightful cesarean childbirths with heaps of drugs and I remember every minute of them and they were delightful. Um, (laughs) Very much not like writing a book. (laughs) So very different experiences for you then. Yeah. Yeah. But it's so true though because like, yeah, you do, you go through whatever big project it is and then, yeah, once you get to the end of it, you're like, I've grown and changed so much in this. And I can't remember how I did it. Like, I and each time I do something like that, I'm like, I really should keep a journal or something. And I, you know, yeah. talk about my feelings for like two days and then I'm like, get too into the project and I get in the zone on that. And then suddenly I'm like, oh, it's done. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> I don't I, know what I did. I, I very much feel that. I always think, uh, well, after the first book, I started to think I should, t- yeah, take more photos as I do it, do little videos, little bits of camera, you know, content, make heaps of content about it. And I do none of that. I I never remember to talk about any of that stuff that happens while I'm writing them. No. And then, of course, we want to ask you all about that process. And you're like, guys, it was a year ago. I don't remember. (laughs) I mean, I will say, I will say that I wrote most of the first draft of this during that, well, I wrote the first half of it during the twenty. 21 lockdown is that when we were in that long one in sydney yeah months? second half of 2021 yeah. yeah that's right yeah so that's when i was writing this i just had my second book uh came out during uh, the sort of semi-lockdown period of january that year so uh, there was no launch there was no visiting bookshops all of that sort of thing it mm. was all very quiet and then i had to just move on to writing the next one which then took place mostly in that in that lockdown with my kids here and me trying to teach them and my husband trying to teach them and try and run his business. And that was quite something. Yeah. Yeah. So but... I wouldn't recommend that process. I have to say. <laughs> no, let's not do that not again, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, but now this time, yeah, after that with, um, this has been absolutely lovely, your second book. Now you have mm. gotten to go out and do events and everything as we speak the book came out probably not quite two weeks ago um you know you've done a couple yep. of things you're back out there I have, is it yeah. fun <laughs> it is fun yes it is fun there's there's events now and people are going to them and going to bookshops is still you know obviously really thrilling and there's you know bookshops are still around which we were all a bit worried they wouldn't be by the end of the pandemic yeah but people read are. more I think they learn yeah. that that you know eventually telly gets boring, and um, and obviously there's been this huge resurgence and mainstreaming of people loving rom coms and romance novels. Now, lots of bookshops I've been going into have now pulled the romances out of the general fiction section and put them in pride of place at the front with all their amazing covers. Mm. And all so, their yeah, and beautiful covers. I know it's great. So I've generally been asking them to please reclassify me if they have me in just general fiction and put me in there, which they mostly are doing. Amazing. (laughs) Yeah, it must be so, I mean, it's just wonderful to, that everyone is like, you know, back at events and back visiting bookshops and, you know, actually seeing the books there you know, we spoke to so many authors over the past couple of years who were like, I never even saw this book in a bookshop because I couldn't leave the house. And it's just... Or people whose books were never going to be in the front window, but they would like press their noses up to try and see it in the, like on a shelf up the back and not be able to get near it. Yeah, that was really heartbreaking for, especially for debut authors at that time. That was awful. But this is great having people back out there and... Yeah, it's so fun. Um... (laughs) On this strange end note, I really want to ask you about being the Christmas angel. <laughs> yes. Let's finish <laughs> okay. on that strange I... story. <laughs> well, it's just that, like, I know it's like this funny line at the end of your bio. So I think, yeah. I, you know, I've read it as I've read all of your books, you know, the past couple of years. And I just, I lit- yeah, I did write in our notes. I was like, I've wondered for years. Like, what is this? Is she talking? It's funny. I remember when I was a kid and I would be reading 
like bios of famous people or authors or actors or something and they'd always have this list of like really quirky interesting jobs always yeah and I remember just keeping it in my head as I sort of started to go through life and going oh my god my jobs are so boring what can I put (laughs) yeah it's gonna waitress nanny bookseller editor the end um (laughs) But there was that moment when I was um, was probably 19. I was at university and I was nannying for somebody who was involved in the theatre and the opera in Sydney. So, yeah, I was a Nepo angel. <laughs> and I got the job back. <laughs> and they were... That for for Chris for the Christmas period, just sort of you know, I think it was probably a week or ten days before Christmas, I like probably nineteen ninety eight, ninety nine maybe. They wanted somebody to sit on top of the town hall in Sydney, not on the roof, but up on the um, the front kind of gallery Juliet balcony situation there. And I and they just wanted somebody to sit there in this huge dress that went over the front and down all over the steps of the town hall and it was all lit from within with fairy lights and there were these huge feathered wings they were like you know eight feet high that came from opera australia and they were kind of attached to the chair that i then was sort of like sitting on a um, tennis umpire's chair and i wore the top half of the dress and then i stepped into the skirt when i got up there so it all looked like one thing yeah. and I, all i did was sit there and wave at people for like why two hours a night why <laughs> strange it was something to insane. do with the city of sydney and oh christmas and they just decided that's what you know they have the tree in martin place and then they had the angel on on the Someone town hall. Had they never did it again no i they... blame myself i don't know what what i did wrong but they never did it again that's so it's Crazy. the only time they ever did it and you were the, yeah. you were the angel. Yeah. And because it was 1990-whatever, there are no photos. <laughs> oh, no. Like, there must like be because I know my parents. Like some kind of my parents did come by and take some pictures. About but... the, there was no, like, little news article about the angel or anything. Oh, there might have been, but I certainly don't have it. No, All I, I can really... think is how boring would that be? Yeah. I had... I had someone up there with me sitting out of sight to chat to me. Oh, that's good. Oh, yeah. That's a bit better. crazy otherwise. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it was really, it was really boring. Can the Christmas job. angel just read a book all yeah. day? That would be great. because <laughs> no, I was busy smiling and waving yeah. at, at, like, tour buses going past. That's you know, it's so funny crazy. because now if they did that, someone could just, you know, have AirPods in under their wig or something and just like mm-hmm. listen to an audiobook yeah, or a just podcast audiobook. and just like yeah. wave and still be entertained. Yeah. yeah. I would have yeah. podcasts. But no, you had to I'd be work. waving as the Christmas angel while listening to a murder podcast. That would be me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Merry Christmas. <laughs> oh, oh what a delightful note to end this conversation on. It has been so, it has been absolutely lovely chatting to you, Jess. <laughs> That means it's time to go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, honestly, it's been so much fun chatting about the book. Um, the book is out now, obviously, but where can people find and follow you online? Um, they can find me on Instagram. I'm Jessica Detman Author, and I am Jess with Gusto on Twitter, and Jessica Detman Author again on Facebook amazing thank you so much thanks very much for having me thank you for listening to better words you can chat to us on instagram at better words pod and follow me michelle at unfinished bookshelf and me caitlin at just a bookish babe if you liked this episode please share it with a book loving friend and leave a rating or review